A few years ago, a parent in this congregation approached me and said, you know, my child asked me a question concerning you. And when I proceeded to ask what exactly this child asked concerning me, this parent said simply, my son wanted to know if you were Jesus. (laughs) Needless to say, I was terrified or flattered. I couldn't tell. And so I did what I normally do when I don't know how to respond. I simply give a little slight chuckle. (laughs) Oh, that's so sweet. Try my best to hide my nervousness. But thankfully, later on, to calm my nerves, I came to discover that many pastors go through this experience. It turns out children in the church sometimes view their pastor as God. And if you think about it, it makes total sense, even though it would be a recipe for disaster if they actually follow through on that belief. Because think of it from a child's perspective. God is invisible. They can't see him. They can't touch him. They can't directly communicate with him. And so for all intents and purposes, he is an abstract figure. And so it makes sense that they would try to concretize God with a concrete person. But as we all know, what is appropriate for little children becomes totally inappropriate for grown adults. And sad to say, too many adults who should know better do exactly that very thing. Oh, they don't make the mistake of being so childish into thinking that their pastor is God. But they do make the mistake of assuming that God is like the people, the human beings that they interact with. Specifically, they attribute, they assume certain characteristics of what is true of human beings and to think that that also applies to God. And one particular attribute that people are notorious of constantly misappropriating and misapplying to God is the human characteristic of dependency. Dependency. It goes without saying, we human beings are dependent creatures. We need things and people in order to live and to continue to live. We have physical dependencies, like our need for water and for food. We have social dependencies, like our need for family, friendships, relationships. We have psychological dependencies, like our need for safety, our need for esteem. We are people who need things and people in order to live. That is how we are created. And this is something that you don't need a psych degree to figure out. This is something that we know intuitively. In fact, this is something that our culture is constantly telling us over and over again. Don't you remember that famous popularized song by Mariah Carey, Without You? You guys remember that song? You remember how those lyrics go? I can't live. If living is without you, I can't live. I can't give anymore. I can't live. If living is without you, I can't give. I can't give any more. We are people who need things and people in our lives in order to exist as well as to continue to exist. But as we say so often around here, what is true of man is not true of God. What is true of man is not true of God. Now, by saying that, I'm not implying that we don't share certain characteristics with God, for the Bible clearly says that we do. But the Bible goes on to tell us that there are certain characteristics, there are certain attributes of God that are uniquely and therefore exclusively God's. Theologians sometimes refer to this as the incommunicable attributes of God. And that simply is just a fancy way of saying there are certain things about God that are only true of God and true of no one else. And today, as we continue our series on God as he is, we're going to come to understand an attribute of God that is true of him, but is never true of anyone else. And that is his self-sufficiency. God, according to scripture, is a self-sufficient God. But what exactly does that mean and how is that relevant to you and I? Well, that's what today's message is about. So through three points, I'm going to share with you in exposition three things. 
excuse me. If anybody has your phone on or if you could just turn it off. That call was from Uzbekistan. Do I know anybody from Uzbekistan? <laughs> yeah, so that's clearly not for me personally. Um, three things I'd like to share with you in today's message. Number one, why God does not need you. Number two, why you need God. And finally, why the God you need is the Christian God. Okay, why God does not need you, why you need God and why the God you need is the Christian God. Okay, let's jump right in first. Why God does not need you read again with me. Verse 22 and 23 of our passage where it starts off saying this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Okay, here's the situation. Paul is currently on what is known as his second missionary journey. And what that basically means, he's going all throughout the Mediterranean telling people about Jesus. And during all this time, he ends up in the city of Athens to what is essentially is a pit stop as he's waiting for some friends to later rendezvous with him. And so what does he do as he's waiting for his friends to arrive? Well, he does what any of us would do whenever we have a long layover. He goes out into the city. He checks it out. He explores the sights and the sounds, and he sees what is out there. But what he finds, what he sees is deeply troubling, and I don't mean in a good way. Is troubling ever a good way? He's deeply disturbed. He's deeply upset. Why? Read for yourself verse 16 of this chapter where Paul says this, or where Luke says this, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. It turns out that as Paul is checking out this massive city known as Athens, he is bombarded with the fact that there's every possible idol a person could worship in the ancient world. As he's just trekking along in this city, everywhere he turns, he sees bunches of different shrines and altars to various idols, right? And in fact, Athens back in this day was notoriously known to be a very, very religious city. In fact, one commentator by the name of William Barclay said this in his commentary in Acts. He said this, quote, It was said that there were more statues of the gods in Athens than in all the rest of Greece put together, and that in Athens it was easier to meet a god than a man. And as we just read in verse 16, it was because of this massive plethora of various idols and deities and gods and goddesses that he was very troubled, very upset. Why? Well, think about it from Paul's perspective for just a moment. Imagine you're Paul walking throughout the city and miles upon miles you're surrounded by shrines of various altars to gods and goddesses, deities and so forth. Okay. What is that? You know what that is? That's consumerism. Because as he's going around, seeing all these various shrines, what does he see? He also sees priests and priestesses coming out on the street, telling people, hey, come into this shrine. Offer your offering so that you can get a blessing for your loved ones, so you could cast a curse against your enemy. And they're just everywhere trying to get people to come in to support their local deity. That's essentially no different than going out to dinner on a Friday night in downtown Flushing with miles upon miles of various restaurants that you could possibly eat at right and in that kind of setup you develop an attitude that paul finds reprehensible and you know what that attitude is it's the attitude that essentially says i can choose the god i worship just like i can choose which restaurant i get to eat at for dinner right 
I get to decide who I worship. Because after all, in this consumeristic culture, I'm the consumer. And as they say, the consumer is king. And as king, I can decide if this God that I worship today will be the God that I worship tomorrow. But hey, if another God opens shop next week and he happens to be offering something better, if my experience at his worship service is much better, then maybe that other God isn't the God I want to keep worshiping. But hey, I get to decide. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that delightful? Right? Wrong, Paul says. Wrong. Paul is very troubled by the religious mindset, the religious ethos that he sees in Athens. It's the underlying mindset that says, just as a business depends on customers for that business to exist, so also the gods depend on worshipers in order for that god to essentially exist. That is the underlying religious mindset that he sees in Athens, and that is the mindset that he is so jealous to correct which he begins to do, starting in verse 24. Read again with me what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What's he saying? You know what he's saying? He's essentially saying this. Look, there is a God, and guess what? He doesn't need you. He doesn't need you or you or you or you. You get the point? God is not the kind where he is like a business to where he depends on people to give him anything to validate his existence or even to allow his existence to flourish or to even function in this world. God is God, according to Paul. He does not need temples made by human hands. He does not need worship service by people in said temple in order for him to feel like he is validated, to feel like he exists, to feel like he has a presence on this earth. That is what he's saying. Consider these very sobering words from A.W. Tozer, where he says this, quote, Were all human beings suddenly to become blind, still the sun would shine by day and the stars by night. From these owe nothing to the millions who benefit from their light. So, were every human being, man, on earth to become an atheist, it could not affect God in any way. What's he saying? He's saying the very opposite of what these Athenians were assuming. And that is, God does not need any of us in order for him to exist. He is totally self-sufficient. He is not codependent or dependent on any of us. In other words, God is not a cosmic Jerry Maguire where he looks to mankind and says, you complete me. He does not have that attitude. He does not have that mindset. And this is something we need to grasp because we live in a culture of Christianity today in America that has bought into this myth that, yes, God somehow needs us to where we complete him. There is this dangerous myth out there that one of the reasons why God created mankind was because he had some deficiency in himself and therefore he needed to create man in order to feel completed. Back in the 1940s, There was a very popular poet of the Harlem Renaissance by the name of James Walden Johnson who popularized this very idea in his award-winning poet called The Creation. Take a listen to how he begins. He said this, quote, And God stepped out on space, and he looked around and said, I'm lonely. I'll make me a world. Then God walked around, and God looked around on all that he had made. He looked at his sun, and he looked at his moon, and he looked at his little stars. He looked on his world and all of its living things. And God says, I'm lonely still. Then God sat down on the side of a hill where he could think. By a deep, wide river, he sat down with his 
head in his hands, God thought and thought till he thought, I'll make me a man. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Too bad is absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. And yet, the fact that it was internationally recognized as one of the best poetry that came out of the Harlem Renaissance, winning all these awards, says something to us, does it not, about the human mindset when it comes to this idea of who God is in his sufficiency of himself. Now, of course, it is somewhat understandable why people like the Athenians and why some Christians today would think this way. After all, there is a common human experience that we go through that these Athenians have projected onto God that we go through all the time. Do we not? What am I talking about? For those of you who are parents, you know what I'm talking about. You know, as you get older, the desire to have kids gets stronger and stronger to the point where it can become unbearable at times, especially when you're trying to have kids and you can't. And in that instance, you can feel incomplete. You can feel deficient. And of course, you could say to yourself, I feel incomplete because I cannot create a child with my spouse. I cannot have someone in my image. And so maybe just by analogy, because God is my creator and I'm made in his image. Yes, God must have felt incomplete before I was here, before mankind was here. And so that's why he created mankind, because he was inefficient or insufficient for himself. Right? Wrong. Wrong. That is absolutely not true. Read again what Paul says in 24. He said, God made the world and everything in it. What is Paul saying? He's saying God is the creator. And when I say creator, I mean capital C creator. Not little c creator like a biological parent, but capital C creator like cosmic creator and because he is the creator that must mean there is a fundamental distinction a fundamental difference between who he is as creator and those who he creates his creatures this is sometimes known as the creator creature distinction take a listen to how one philosopher by the name of john frame explains it he says this quote god creates as lord he brings the world forth by his power and command he is the lord the creation is his servant so scripture teaches a clear distinction between a creator and creature the world is not the lower end of a continuum with god at the top the world is not essentially divine as in the gnostic scheme so creation is not an emanation of the divine essence my children are literally an emanation of me The DNA in their body, or at least half of it, was at one point in my body. That was once my DNA that got replicated and replicated and replicated. The point is, they come from my substance, right? They come from the same parts of me. They are literally my biological emanation, and therefore, they have the same value, they have the same dignity, they have the same worth that I do as virtue as a human being. But as I said before, what's true of human beings is not true of God. We are not made of divine substance. We do not emanate from God. The Bible says we are made from the dust and one day we will return to the dust. We were not created out of God parts. We were not created out of God DNA. And because that is true, God is superior to us in so many different categorical ways. His value, his worth is so other. It's so holy. Remember from last week? to where there is no comparison whatsoever to what we can make between us and him. And as a result, he is not like us. I need children in order to be a dad. 
God does not need worshipers in order to be God. Okay? That's the creator-creature distinction. Right? And that is why God does not need you. Okay? You get that? Good. Let's move on to the second point. Why you, however, need God. Read again verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now this is interesting. As Paul is bombarded with a cornucopia of the various idols that is around him, all the various altars and shrines, one particular altar catches his mind, catches his eye. Right? It's this altar that has the inscription to the unknown God. And the question is, what's so significant? What was so special about this altar to where it just caught his eye, caught his attention? Hmm? What was so special about it? Let me explain. It goes without saying that Paul does not believe in any other gods or goddesses. Right? He's not a polytheist, which is the belief in many gods. He is a monotheist. In consistency to his Judaism prior to his conversion, Paul believes there is only one true God and only God. Okay, and this God is made up of three persons, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, the mysterious triune God. In other words, Paul is convinced in his heart of hearts that there is only one true God and that's his God. But here's the kicker by referring to this altar to the unknown God. Do you realize what he's saying? He's saying not only does he know that this God that he believes in is the one and true God, but he's saying even the Athenians know there is only one true God and that's his God. By virtue of the fact that this altar even exists, validates what Paul says elsewhere about the nature of the human heart. For example, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, we read, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. According to Paul, every human being knows in their heart of hearts there is a God and that this one God is Paul's God. It's the Christian God. Right? Every human being, no matter what they say, no matter what they claim, in their heart of hearts knows there is a God, and that God is Paul's God. Now, I know you hear this, and that sounds absolutely crazy. That sounds ludicrous, even for those of you who call yourself Christians. Because if that is true, that would have some very hard-to-believe implications. Namely, people who've never heard of Christianity, you're telling me they know the Christian God? who grew up in different faiths, different traditions, never been exposed to a missionary, to the gospel, to the church. They know God. And furthermore, Pastor, you're saying that atheists, staunch radical atheists who say in their heart of hearts, there can't be no God. You're saying that they know God too? That can't be right. That can't be what Paul is saying. Could it, Pastor John? It is. That is essentially what Paul is saying. In spite of what people claim, in spite of what people believe or don't believe, Paul says, every human being knows that there is a God, and that God is the God of Christianity. How can that be? Consider this very deep, insightful word from Cornelius Van Til, a philosopher who lived in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. He said this, quote, The best and only possible proof for the existence of God 
is that his existence is required for the uniformity of nature and for the coherence of all things in the world. We cannot prove the existence of beams underneath a floor if by proof we mean that they must be ascertainable in the way that we can see the chairs and tables on the floor. But the very idea of a floor as a support of tables and chairs requires the idea of beams that are underneath. Thus, there is absolute certain proof for the existence of God and the truth of Christian theism. Even non-Christians presuppose its truth while they verbally reject it. They need to presuppose the truth of Christian theism in order to account for their own accomplishments. Hmm. What's he saying? In order to make sense of life through science, through math, through philosophies, i.e. the tables in a room, as well as to enjoy life like sports and work, recreation, i.e. the chairs in a room, you have to assume the Christian God, the beams underneath the floor that supports the chairs and the tables. You see? Now again, that sounds ludicrous. It sounds hard to believe. But if you just bear with me for just a moment, let me at least attempt to try and persuade you by first asking this question. Why do you think these Athenians built this altar to an unknown God? Because think about the situation. So many gods, so many goddesses, so many deities to worship. You would think that at least one of them would be able to satisfy every religious itch they had. And yet they felt this compulsion to build this altar to an unknown God. Why is that? What could possibly be the reason? Hmm? A few years ago, uh, Tim Whitemarsh, who was a professor of Greek culture at Cambridge University, came out with a very interesting book called Battling the Gods, Atheism in the Ancient World. And shockingly to discover through his exhaustive research, turns out many Greeks, like the ones in Athens, were atheists. Even though their culture was imbued with so much Greek beliefs about the gods and goddesses, it was all cultural for them. Many of them, (laughs) through actual, he has actual letters where people have written back in the day, like they don't actually believe in these gods or goddesses. Many of them were atheists. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, how could that be? And first of all, why were they atheists? One reviewer of the book put it this way, quote, part of the reason is that Greek gods didn't do much. They handed down no sacred revelation or scriptures. Their character and exploits were chronicled in Homer's epic poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and in Hesiod's Theogony, works known more for their narrative drive than for their religious zeal. Indeed, Zeus, Hera, Athena, and Apollo came across as fickle and fawning, toying with mortals for their own amusement. For instance, now favoring the Greeks, now the Trojans in the long-standing Trojan War. Likewise, the gods didn't play much of a role in regulating morality or promising immortality. Humans had a battle with them to even approach the threshold of their blissful existence. Immortal and unaging, living a life of luxurious abundance without toil, despite their affluence, the gods came across as capricious caricatures. Turns out the Greek gods and goddesses back then were some messed up people. Very inconsistent, very poor character. And in that kind of divine assembly, it makes sense why the Athenians would create an altar to a God they didn't know because they knew they needed this God. They needed a certain type of God. In other words, these Athenians and really every human being needs a source of authority, needs a source of power, needs a source of truth that cannot be corrupted, that cannot be compromised, that cannot be coerced. Every human heart longs for this. And the only source that is able to do this is a source that does not need anything from those it has authority over, power over, or provides truth to. 
And the only source that fits this description is the God who is self-sufficient, a God who does not need man, the Christian God, you see? Every human being, whether they're religious or not, yearns for a source of authority, power, and truth that cannot be corrupted, that cannot be coerced, that cannot be compromised. This is why people, whether they're religious or not, get furious when wealthy parents bribe universities to get their dumb kids into the school, right? This is why people, whether they're religious or not, get involved in the political process because they don't want corrupt politicians in office. This is why people, whether they're religious or not, get frustrated when news outlets that claim to be unbiased are clearly biased with a certain ideological agenda. What's my point? My point is every human being yearns for a self-sufficient source of authority, power, and truth because that is the only source that cannot be compromised, coerced, or corrupted. That is what every human heart yearns for. Because we all want to believe that what we know to be true is actually true. We all yearn for a situation where we know that what is right and wrong is truly right and wrong. And when right and wrong gets mixed up, that there is a source of justice that will make it right. And here what Paul is saying is that source is God. It's a person. It's a being. It's not a thing. It's not an idea. It's a person. Because as one theologian Philosopher John Frame again says, no impersonal being can serve as the norm for knowledge and ethics, nor could it be incredible. Could it be a credible first cause? The source of power and authority and truth that we all yearn for, that we all need for our sanity, for our living as a society to have peace, has to be a God who is self-sufficient, a God who cannot be compromised, a God who cannot be corrupted, and a God who cannot be coerced in any way over those he has got over. Now, you hear that and you're thinking, okay, I'm tracking with you so far, Pastor, but you still haven't answered the bigger question, and, and that is, why is it the Christian God that fits that description? What about some of these other gods that are popular out today? You know, the God of Islam, Allah, or the God of Zoroastrianism, Ahura Mazda, or about one of the many millions of gods in Hinduism. Why couldn't those gods fit that description of what you're saying today? That's a great question. And this leads me to my final point, why the God you need is the Christian God. Go back up with me to our passage in verse 29. Paul goes on to say, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Here Paul says something very interesting at the beginning of verse 29. He says that we, mankind, are God's offspring. We are literally his children. And when you hear that, I know it can cast suspicion to what I've been arguing so far, right? Because we parents in here, we know that one of the natural instincts that we have is to want to do all that we can, maybe even doing anything that is necessary to make sure that our children flourish. You know, I kind of made that slight reference ago, a moment ago about that college scandal where very rich, wealthy parents, you know, bribe the universities to get them into school. Now, we all know in here, that's wrong, right? All parents, we, we know that's wrong. Oh, I can't believe it. But let's be honest, parents. If that opportunity was given to you and you had the guarantee that you would never get caught, Every single one of you, every single one of you, at least think about it for two seconds. I wouldn't. I would think about it for three days. <laughs> you know that's true. Why? 
Well, other than the fact that we are all sinners, there is something natural in us as parents to do all that we can because we feel this need for our children to flourish at all costs. You can call it the biological need to pass on our genes. You can call it a parent's love for their child. The fact of the matter is we as parents have this compulsion, this need to make sure that our children flourish at all costs. And so when you read Paul saying that we are the offsprings of God, the temptation might be to think, well, wait a minute. If we're like this as parents and God is technically our parent, how come he wouldn't be vulnerable to corruption and coercion, you know, and being compromised? Because if we are his offspring and we're willing to do that to our offspring, how come he is not vulnerable to that kind of temptation that we're all tempted with? Paul says to us why in verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and by which he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying God calls everyone everywhere to repent. Everyone everywhere to repent. You know what that means? It means we all have to acknowledge and confess that we are broken, wicked, wretched, perverted, dark, broken sinners, right? We must do that. Why? If we don't, God will not hesitate. He will have no problems. He will have no second thoughts of judging each and every one of you to eternal condemnation. Does that sound like a person who was willing to have us flourish at all costs? No. See, again, we come back to this idea that what's true of man is not true of God, right? Even though we are his offspring, he loves us with a father's love. He does not feel this need to have us flourish at all costs. Because if that was true, Paul would not say what he does. That God will eventually judge us. And if we don't measure up, if we miss that mark, he will have no problems of putting us in a situation where we are not flourishing at all. Hell. Now you hear that and you're like, okay, on the one hand, that's good because that tells me God will never compromise, right? The truth. He will never compromise his authority. He will never corrupt his power. But yet on the other hand, it's like, oh, but it makes God look so cold, so distant, so unloving. What do I do about that? I'll tell you what you do. You go back again to what Paul said in 31, right? He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And on this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God will judge the world. But before he does, he will provide a way of mercy. Because the way that God judges the world is through a person whom he raised from the dead. We all know who that is, right? That's Jesus, right? God will always provide mercy before he executes judgment what is that talking about that's talking about the gospel the gospel what is the gospel the gospel is the good news that says even though god does not need his offspring to flourish at all costs nevertheless he desires his offspring to flourish at all costs right even though god the father does not need to save sinners he sends his son into the world to where he would see his son suffering the most wretched and painful death ever. Right? 
Even though God the Son does not need to save sinners, He chooses to come into the world and to live a life of obscurity and pain and sorrow and loneliness and to be pretty much betrayed and judged unjustly so that He could pay the cost necessary so that you would flourish. God the Holy Spirit does not need to save sinners, but He chooses to dwell in you even though you constantly grieve Him, as Scripture says, because of your constant sin and disobedience. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit does not need to save you at all cost, but they chose to save you at great cost, to pay whatever cost was necessary so that you would flourish. The triune God. By the way, it's because God is triune that we need the God to be the triune God. Why we need the source of power, authority, and truth to be God. Because think about it, a God who's triune is a God who's self-sufficient. He doesn't need love. He doesn't need dependencies because he has love and dependency within himself. The Father loves and depends on the Son and the Spirit. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit and depends on them. The Spirit loves and depends on the Father and the Son. They are a tight-knit group where all the love, all the worship, all the validation, right, all the strength, all the empowerment, all the encouragement is contained in that holy community which means any invitation to be a part of that community, which is what salvation is, is an act of what? Pure grace. It means God does not have to love you, but he chooses to love you. That is why the God you need is the Christian God, because there is no other God. Look for him in any other faith, any other philosophy. You will not find a triune God. And it is only the triune God who can meet these philosophical epistemic you know metaphysical qualifications that you need for a source of a sufficient source of power authority and truth you only find it in the christian god and that's how you can be assured that even though god doesn't need to love you the fact that he does love you is marvelous let me end with a personal story so just to hit it home one morning one of my children was very mean to their sibling. And I confronted this child. I will leave this child nameless. I said, child, why were you mean to your sister? Right? Don't you love your sister? And my child responded, yes, I love my sister. I was like, well, wait a minute. You say you love your sister, but you act in a way that shows that you don't love her. You know what my child said to me? Daddy, of course I love my sister. She's my sister. I have to love her. Those of you who have siblings, you've probably heard that before. Do you love me, Hong? Do you love me, Opa, Nuna, Ani? Right? It's like, yeah, but only because I have to. Right? If God said, to, if you ask God, Lord, do you love me? And he says, yeah, I kind of have to. You're my offspring. You know, let me ask, would that inspire, would that empower, would that motivate you to live the life of courage and fearlessness and selflessness that he calls us to do in this world? Probably not. See, the fact that God does not need to love you because he's self-sufficient, but yet chooses to love you, that is what gives you the source and power to live a life of courageous faithfulness in this unfaithful, fearful world. My question to you, NCF, is, is that the conviction that you have? Do you have a view of God 
Not a God who just needs you and is so dependent, say, oh, you complete me, you complete me. But a God who is so self-sufficient, so holy, so other, to where you're humbled by the fact that even though he doesn't have to love you, he chooses to love you. And that energizes you and empowers you to be a blessing to the world, to where you can even love people who don't deserve to be loved, who have forfeited their right to be loved by you, but yet you choose to love them, bringing peace, bringing forgiveness, bringing restoration to a world that is so divided. I hope and pray that would be the beginning of the impetus of you becoming part of a church that really is a blessing to a world like ours. Let's pray. Father, help us now to apply today's word. Though we are filled with much pomp and arrogance to where we see ourselves more necessary and important than we are, humble us with the truth that only you are truly the uncompromised, self-sufficient God. And that is actually good news for us because we know that because you are self-sufficient, not only are you the source of power, truth, and authority that we need for stability in this life, but also the comfort, encouraging truth that you love us with a deep and abiding love. Help us to live out this truth as we live in this world, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.